hear God's word to you in the book of Joshua. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March round this city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march round the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried round the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched round the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched round the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time round, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that are in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so you will not bring about your own destruction 
by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and bought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. They bought out her entire family and put them in place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Thanks uh, so much for reading, Sam. Lovely to see you this morning. My name is Johnny, uh, Clifton Pastor here. Uh, welcome, welcome. Great to have you here with us. Uh, these, are, these are hard verses, aren't they? These are tricky verses. Um, so uh, please do um, keep your Bibles, if you've got one, open in front of you. Also, the, the sheet that you were given as you came in, you'll see that there's some notes there that we're going to um, uh, uh, refer to a bit later on. So you might want to have that open in front of you as well. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you as ever that you are not a quiet God, that you are not hidden from us, that every Sunday as we open the scriptures, you speak to us, you are with us, and we pray that that would be our experience this morning. Grant us humble hearts, Lord. Help us to have sensitive ears to hear what it is you are saying, and help us to know that you are good and you are God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the book of Joshua feels, um, if you've been with us through, through the series so far, it's a bit of like a slow start. You kind of know what's going to happen, but, but it never seems to actually happen. We, we know that they're going to move into Canaan and take the land, but something keeps coming up. There's the River Jordan, and it seems that the Lord waits for the worst moment to cross the River Jordan when it's in flood. Anyway, they get through, and they think, great, let's go, but then stop. You've got to circumcise yourselves, the whole army. Okay, great, we'll do that. Let's get going now. Stop. Got to have the Passover. Eat, ceremony. Brilliant. We'll get going now. But then stop. 
What is it this time? Verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Now, I don't want to kind of read into what Joshua is thinking, but you would understand if he's getting a little bit annoyed at this point, wouldn't you? Just want to invade. Just want to take my army into Canaan and, and get this job done. First a river in flood, then circumcision, then Passover, and now an unknown warrior standing in front of me with his sword drawn. So Joshua asks, are you for us? Are you for our enemies? Listen to the reply. Neither. Or literally, no. And for a moment, I imagine Joshua's annoyance levels were increasing. What do you mean, no? That doesn't even make sense, given the question I just asked. Children, when they're young, they kind of get their early words. And as parents, you love to say their early word was kind of like dada or mama or something. Often it's no. That's kind of one of the most important words they seem to learn very early on. And they just say it all the time. Sometimes it's ridiculous. Do you want to walk or drive to the park? No. What, you want to fly? How are you going to get there? Might have some fun. Do you want to breathe in or do you want to breathe out? No. Doesn't make any sense. It's kind of what it feels like with this question here. Are you for us or for, or for our enemies? No. But frustration, if there was any, quickly turns to adoration. We see that in our first point. We are fighting for the Lord's cause. We are fighting for the Lord's cause. So, Joshua is asked, are you for us or, or for our enemies? And, and this warrior says neither or, or literally no. But he goes on. Verse 14. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Look, if, you, if you know anything about the, the Bible story, if you know what's happened previously in the book of Exodus with Moses and the burning bush, this is all very similar, isn't it? Moses encounters an appearance of the Lord in the burning bush and likewise he is instructed to take off his sandals. This is holy ground. So do you see who it actually is standing in front of Joshua with his sword drawn? It is an appearance of the Lord himself. The, the warrior before Joshua is a divine warrior. And now, his response makes sense, doesn't it? Are you for us or are you for our enemies, Joshua asks. No. <laughs> Whose side are you on? Neither. Of course. Because God doesn't join us in our battles, we join him in his. Chris Evans pointed out to me a conversation that Abraham Lincoln once had beyond the screen. A lady asked Abraham Lincoln during the dark days of the American Civil War if he was confident that God was on their side. Madam, he was said to reply, I am less concerned whether God is on our side than whether we are on his side. 
See, before Joshua enters into this land and fights this fight, he needs to realize something. Before Israel go into battle, they need to realize something. The Lord isn't on their side, first and foremost. It is a question of whether they are on the Lord's side. The Lord doesn't fight our causes, first and foremost. We fight his. And that is a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? Because this is what we assume. You know, we have our our life goals. We, We have a vision for the kind of life we want. And we think the Lord is on our side and that he is fighting to accomplish those things. Health or or family or career or whatever it might be. Or, Or we come up with other worthy causes, things we feel passionate about, maybe that would make the world a better place. And even as a church, we can think up our strategies and our our projects. Plant 10 churches in 10 years. Reach 50% of the population in five years. We have these causes, these missions. And with all these things, we assume that God is on our side fighting our course. But it isn't that way round. The Lord does not join our cause or our mission We join his. Whose side are you on? Neither, says the Lord. And then asks back to us, whose side are you on? So what is God's cause? What is God's mission? First and foremost, the mission of God is the glory of God. Back in Joshua, the people would have assumed that they were going to conquer the land of Canaan so that they could have a place to live. And God had promised that. It was certainly part of his mission, his cause. But that is not the only reason God is sending his people into Canaan. Now, where we're going next, you need to keep alert. I'm going to deal with some of the hard bits of this book, but it will help us see that there is a bigger cause that God is fighting than just to give his people somewhere to live. I need to take you back to a promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15. If you've got a Bible, you can look it up. Now, when God makes this promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, Abraham was actually in the land of Canaan, the land that Joshua is about to conquer. And while he is there, God made a promise to him. He says to Abraham, in 400 years, your ancestors will take this land that you are now living in. But why the delay? Why wait 400 years? Well, listen to what God says, chapter 15, verse 16 of Genesis. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites are the people living in the land of Canaan. And God says to Abraham, I am going to give them 400 years. 400 years to stop their sin and to repent. And that's what happens. For 400 years, the Amorites are given this opportunity to change. To stop their injustice, their cruelty, their idolatry that includes child sacrifice. For 400 years, the Lord waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits. But he cannot wait forever. 
for the sake of his glory, for the sake of justice, he must step in. Otherwise, it would seem as though the Lord did not care about injustice and evil and idolatry. It would appear as though God had no power or authority to stop these things. And so do you see? The Lord's cause, the Lord's mission, isn't just to give Israel a home. It is to punish and stop the sins of the Amorites. The conquering of Canaan isn't just about finding a home. It is about justice and it is about judgment. It's about God revealing his glory. That he is good and he is God and he won't let evil go unpunished forever. Now that explains some of the language and action back in Joshua chapter 6. And these are some of the hardest verses in the book of Joshua. So 6 verse 17. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Verse 19. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Verse 21, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Do you hear that language? The city is to be devoted to the Lord. That is, everything in the city belongs to God. It is not to be used by Israel to make themselves rich. If the mission was to give Israel a home and that was it, well, of course, you'd keep all of that stuff and you'd use the people and enforce them to work and you'd take all the money and use it for yourself. But that is not the only cause that is being fought here. No, it is about justice and judgment and the glory of God. For 400 years, these people have openly rebelled against God. They have worshipped false gods. They have not given the Lord the worship and honor that he is due and with terrible consequences for those living in the land of Canaan. So, by putting the people to death, God is restoring justice for all the injustice that they have done. And by putting the gold and the bronze and iron into the Lord's treasury, the Lord is taking something of what he has been owed for the last 400 years. The conquest of Canaan was not just about getting a home for Israel. It is about the glory and honor of God. It is about justice as well. He will not let evil go unpunished forever. In that sense, the conquest of Canaan is a picture of what is to come for all of us. A final judgment when God will be vindicated and glorified as evil is punished. Sobering, isn't it? So the conquering of Canaan wasn't Joshua or Israel's battle. It wasn't primarily about them and their cause. It was first and foremost God's battle and God's cause, his glory. The Lord doesn't join our side. We join his. We fight his cause. Now, wonderfully, our good and his glory intermingle. But first and foremost, we fight his cause. I want to apply this in a second, but let me just say a couple of other things about the conquest of Canaan. 
People look at these passages and say, your God is a genocidal maniac. It's ethnic cleansing. It's a cruel slaughter. I've put some things down in your sheet. You can take away, look at those. There's a link to something more to think a bit more about some of those issues. But I just want to highlight two that I've put there. First, we've already said this, the conquering of Canaan was patient justice. The Lord gave the Amorites 400 years to stop what they were doing. You know, sometimes people say, why didn't the Lord just intervene? Imagine if you were captured by Nazis, put in a concentration camp. Why doesn't God do something? Well, here we see what it looks like when God does intervene. And one day he will do so again. So the conquering of Canaan was patient justice. The other thing I want to say, that the conquering of Canaan, point three that I put there, uses exaggerated language. Just need to be aware of this. Sometimes it says that a whole city was wiped out or destroyed or a whole people group were killed. But later in the book, we discover that actually some of those people are still alive and that city still seems to be there. So what is it, a contradiction? No, it's just the way that language can be used. It exaggerated to make a point, to show that victory was complete and utter. You know, I'm a Southampton football fan, so this doesn't very happen very often, but occasionally if we actually win, and we win by two or three goals, you might say, oh, we annihilated the opposition. It doesn't mean that we actually went out onto the pitch and took them down with swords and guns or whatever. It just means it was a complete and utter victory. It's that kind of language that is sometimes used here. Not necessarily every single person was killed, but is communicating that it was a complete and utter victory. Those two things to have in mind, but there are others as well. So let's apply this idea. The Lord doesn't join our side, we join his. The Lord doesn't fight for our cause, we fight first and foremost for his. And as we've seen, his primary mission is the, goal of his, is the glory of his name. And that, that all may, may know who he is and the reality that he is. And sometimes God's glory is seen in his gracious and merciful salvation, just as he saves Rahab and her family in Joshua chapter 6. But sometimes his glory and justice is seen in his judgment, just as the city of Jericho falls. And that means sometimes things won't go as we think best, because it is not our cause but first and foremost, God's cause that he is fighting. Yes, maybe the Lord will display his glory and justice by opening the eyes of the blind and softening hearts and turning a whole city to Christ. May that be so. But maybe he will display his glory and his justice by keeping blind eyes shut and hard hearts hard. Sometimes and often the Lord will display his glory in our life by blessing us and the desires of our hearts, but sometimes he will display his glory in our life by allowing us to face grief and heartache and disappointment. You see, there is a battle, there is a fight, but it is the Lord's battle, it is the Lord's cause. And the question isn't, is God on our side, but are we on his side we fight the lord's cause and not only is the cause god's cause the weapons we use are the lord's weapons secondly fighting with the lord's weapons joshua and the people are now given the go-ahead 
Go into Canaan. Verse, uh, and we should expect um, this by now in Joshua, that the, the kind of approach to this battle is very unconventional. Everything so far has been unconventional in Joshua. Verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March round the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear the sound, uh, they hear them sound a long blast and the trumpets, make the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Now, not in a million years would Joshua have come up with this plan. This is not, you know, kind of 101, how you take down a city, march around it six times, and on the seventh day, seven times, march around it. It's not going to work. But the Lord's ways are not our ways. His methods are not our methods. His weapons are not our weapons. And we need to fight with the Lord's weapons. Now, of course, our war is a very different kind of war to the one that Joshua and Israel were fighting. But make no mistakes, brothers and sisters, we are in a war. We're not fighting nations and conquering lands. As Paul says in Ephesians, our war is not against flesh and blood. But there is still conquering to be done. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 10, it will be on the screen. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Like Joshua in Canaan, there is conquering to be done for New Testament believers. The hearts and minds of men and women conquered for Christ, just like our hearts and minds were conquered for Christ. And we fight not with the weapons of the world, but the Lord's weapons. And who is it that shows us what those weapons are? What is the divine warrior? Jesus Christ. Do you remember back in Joshua 5, Joshua is confronted by this divine warrior, the commander of the Lord's armies. It is a picture of Jesus. He is the true commander of God's armies. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, just before he is arrested and then crucified, I could call down 12 legions of angels. He is the divine warrior, the captain of the Lord's armies. But Jesus doesn't fight the way the world does, with swords and spears and chariots back then. He tells Peter and his followers, put your swords away. They are not my weapons. Instead, what are his weapons? How does Jesus push back the powers of evil and capture people for his kingdom? Well, you just have to look at his life, don't you? He uses the weapon of prayer. Just before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, I could call down 12 legions of angels, what was he doing? Praying. What are some of the last words that we have of Jesus as he dies on the cross? It is a prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus uses his word. How does his kingdom grow? Through the proclamation of his gospel. 
by persuading people that Jesus is Lord, that hell is real, and salvation can be found in him. And Jesus uses the weapon of love, and he uses the weapon of defeat that leads to victory. Look at his life. See the weapons that he uses. Prayer, word, love, defeat that leads to victory. They are our weapons. And I started the list with prayer for a reason. I've said this a couple of times at the front. Because I suspect that this is one that we are weak at. We do not pray. Concerned for friends and family who don't know Jesus, what should you do? Pray. Concerned about the world and that the values that, that are, are, are shaping our, our culture, what do you do? You pray. Concerned about your health. Concerned about the future, about your wealth, your money. What, what should you do? Pray. I'm not saying that we can't do other things. Organize events, evangelism events, and contact your MP and call out evil in the world. Whatever. Yes, do other things. But pray and pray and pray again. Is that because prayer will change everything the way we want it to be changed? Not necessarily. Remember, it is the Lord's fight. He knows best how to answer our prayers. But prayer is a weapon that will also keep us in the fight. Lady Jane Grey was queen for nine days after the short reign of Edward VI. She was only 18 and she was deeply faithful to Christ. Events turned against her and the Mary, Queen of Scots, came to power and Catholic Mary demanded that Protestant Jane be killed. And she's facing her execution. She's locked up in the Tower of London. Do you know what she asked for? A book of prayers and the script of the Bible. She prayed and she prayed. Did she think the Lord would help her escape if she was praying? No, I don't think so. But she knew that the battle she was in, the battle that she was fighting, was not just against Mary, Queen of Scots. It was a battle for her own heart as well. She prayed, May I die a true Christian woman. May I not look to be saved by any other means, but only by the mercy of God in the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. Lord, whatever happens, keep me following Jesus. You see, prayer isn't just about us fighting against the forces of evil. It is about us keeping our own hearts in the fight. The Lord answers our prayers. Yes, maybe to change the world, but also to keep us true Christians to the end. So brothers and sisters, we have a wonderful weapon. It is prayer. Let us use it. But there is another weapon, not mentioned it yet, and this one I think is of most importance. Let's go back to Joshua. When the people march around the city, they're not just marching, are they? They are worshipping. The priests who are with them, the trumpets. And for six days they march once around the city. And Joshua said to them, you must not shout on those six days. But then on the seventh day, it's different. They march around seven times and then listen, verse 16. 
The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The people are allowed to shout, but, but why not shout on the other days? Why only on the seventh? Because the seventh day is like a Sabbath. It is the day when God's people would assemble to worship. If you've been Redeemer women, you would have seen this on Friday. Leviticus 23, verse 3, there are six days when you may go to work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly, a sacred gathering. Interesting, the word shout is also used in the Old Testament to describe an act of worship. Sometimes when we start our services, we have a call to worship and we use these words from Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us make joyful noise, same word, shout in the presence of God. What are the people doing as they march around Jericho? They are praising God and rejoicing in his majesty and his glory. They are worshipping the Lord. And look at the effect it has, verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. Worship is our greatest weapon. Like the Israelites gathered on the seventh day to worship God and bring down the walls of Jericho, so we gather on the Lord's day to worship God and we wage war. We wage war against the darkness that remains in our own hearts by declaring that God is God and I am not. We wage war against the authorities and powers of darkness by declaring to them that God is God and they are not. We wage war against hard hearts and blind eyes by calling upon God to show mercy and grace. We wage war against injustice and lies and deceit by proclaiming the truth about God and calling upon him to shine his truth brightly in the world. Worship is warfare. One pastor put it like this, be on the screen. The worship of the church, rightly understood, is warfare, and it is a mode of battle which unbelief has no effective means of resisting. This is because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal of the world, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We have a battering ram about which the lords and princes of this world know nothing. And every Lord's day, we take another swing at their gates with it. Worship is warfare. It is our greatest weapon as we look to see the kingdom of Christ grow in our hearts and grow in the world. It is worship Sunday by Sunday that enables us to use all of the other weapons that God has given us. It is worship that grows us in our prayerfulness. It is worship that grows us in the confidence of God's word. It is worship that grows our love for the world and grows our courage to live for Christ, to suffer for Christ, to even die for Christ. Worship is warfare. 
Do you long to see the kingdom of Christ grow in your heart and in the world? It starts here. Do you long to see the forces of evil pushed back? Do you long to see true social justice and hearts captured for Christ? It starts here. It starts with worship, Sunday by Sunday. The Lord may not bring things about the way that we think best. Remember, it is the Lord's cause. It is his battle. We join and fight for his cause. But this is how our fight begins and goes on. With worship. So, brothers and sisters, we are in a battle. It's the Lord's battle. And we are called to fight on the Lord's side with weapons that he has given us. Worship, prayer, the word of God, love, defeat that leads to victory. They are our weapons as we fight. And let's pray that the Lord would give us courage and strength to do so. Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we are in a different time in a different place. Sometimes what we read can bristle against our own sensibilities. Father, we pray that in all humility, we would let your truth shape our sensibilities. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would see what it is you are doing in these chapters that it would give us such confidence and hope for our time and our place. That even if we may not be a mighty presence in this world, in the, the, the eyes of the world, when we gather to worship, when we pray, when we use the word of God, we are using weapons that can bring down kingdoms and turn hearts to Christ. Help us to fight on your side. In Jesus' name, amen.